BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, state controller candidate Lonnie Chen is trying to do something no Republican has done since 2006. That's when a statewide election. Exactly. The Stanford academic definitely has the policy chops for the job. He's got four, yes, count them, four degrees from Harvard. But can he break the stranglehold the Democrats have had on statewide politics? That is the question. Lonnie Chen joins us to discuss you know, that and exactly why he's the right person to be California's fiscal watchdog. But first, Guy, we found out late last night that the governor and his family had jetted off to uh, Central and South America for what I, you know, I think we could say is a well-deserved uh, break. Uh, he's from, been through a lot. He's been through a lot. It was funny that, you know, the statement we got from the governor's office was very almost like defensive, like, well, he's been dealing with the drought and wildfires and the pandemics. Like, yeah, just go. Just go have a vacation. But before he did leave, uh, he got some stuff done, specifically around the drought. Um, he announced sort of a peace deal of sorts uh, where uh, farmers as well as uh, cities are going to give water back. Uh, billions of gallons are going to put money into a fund to kind of restore some of these troubled uh, fish habitat. And then he also uh, kind of got the, 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 the ball rolling on more conservation efforts, possibly, uh, you know, ordering folks not to water their lawns. But that's, uh, I think, you know, given that this we've had the three driest months on record ever in California, it seems almost a little timid in terms of what, he, what he's been doing. Right. I think that's the natural place people are going to look. Why? What's the road to mandatory restrictions, uh, water conservation, which we haven't had since Governor Jerry Brown instituted that in the last route? And I was just thinking this week, you know, what the way in which that worked, right? Brown announced those mandatory cutbacks and we hit our goals in terms of conservation. What was it that let that message cut through? Maybe it was the mandatory nature of it, right? This is no longer a drill. You have to take these cutbacks. I think you could argue maybe we've hit the kind of low-hanging fruit when it comes to urban conservation, right? Year over year, Newsom's voluntary cutbacks, we haven't hit those metrics. But if you look before the last drought, we are using something like 15% less water. And then the third thing I'll throw out here, maybe there's just a lot less going on in the world 
back in 2015 that yeah. let that message cut through. There's well, not only that, I think, you know, there's a, a bit of fatigue uh, around the pandemic and, you know, a lot of orders coming from Sacramento about masks and mandates for vaccinations and businesses closing and schools closing. And I just wonder if they didn't figure, you know what, I don't think people have much of an appetite for more mandates from the state right now, as much as we might need them, given, you know, the dire nature of the water situation. Right. I mean, it's getting to the point where there's that seems like the logical uh, next step if this continues. We're in heading into April. We've kind of made it through the the quote unquote rainy season with a few dry months in a row. Quickly, just on that water deal that you mentioned, I do think that could ultimately be a big deal for the Newsom administration. This is something the, that's driven the water wars uh, for years in this state. Certainly environmentalists feel like the deal that was announced was not as far as the state water board wanted to go a few years back. But I think the bet on the part of the Newsom administration is here is let's do something that's not going to spend years and years in litigation. In courts, yeah, fighting over that, yeah. Well, another thing that happened uh, just today, Thursday, the state Senate, uh, by an overwhelming margin, passed AB 2179. That's a bill to extend some of these renter eviction protections to folks. Uh, They were set to expire at midnight tonight. They'll now be uh, in effect through the end of June. And it's interesting, uh, it was a 36 to 1 vote in the state Senate. The one person voting against it was State Senator Scott Weiner, who felt that it was undermining, well, you didn't feel it was, in fact, undermining some local uh, protections that have been in place. Um, but, you know, some Democrats are saying, look, it's better to do something than nothing. But, you know, he voted against it. Yeah, I think ultimately those vote counts are a little misleading, right? The perception that was coming out from Democrats as they voted for this legislation was not, you know, totally enthralled with the package before them, right? I think there was not only those kind of local override concerns, but also the fact that the deadline is still tonight to apply for that rental assistance. Yes, the eviction protection is being extended, but it was a tough balance. Obviously, landlord groups felt like we've given enough on this issue. Um, And so I think in the end, the message you heard from a lot of Democrats was this is the best we can do uh, at this point. Notable, though, that it was the lieutenant governor, Eleni Kunalakis, who just uh, signed this legislation this afternoon. I'm sure you're going to be seeing that photo photo. on future uh, campaign mailers for whatever she decides to do next. Because as we know, not a lot of moments in the sun for an LG. Well, not only that, this is the first, I believe, bill ever signed into law in California by a woman, which is incredible, actually. If you think about all the women, we've had two U.S. senators and many, uh, you know, Tony Atkins, the speaker and president. But, you know, never, never a governor, never a lieutenant governor who has, in fact, signed a bill. So, yeah, that makes history. Uh, You know, and on the renter thing, I have to wonder, too, you know, the person who would have been shepherding that bill through was probably David Chu. Mm. Uh, If he'd still been in the assembly, he's now city attorney in San Francisco. And you do have to wonder if he had still been there, might he have been able to move the governor a little bit? Or would there have been a different kind of compromise that somebody like Scott Weiner or Phil Ting, the assemblyman from San Francisco, who also didn't vote for the bill? You know, who knows? We'll never know. Right. I mean, it was Chu who led that big compromise along with the governor a couple years ago when it came to rent gouging, right? You know, there was there never really been before this comprehensive effort to tackle to put any kind of really cap on rent increases. They were able to work that kind of deal out. But yeah, specifically to what you're saying, looking out for San Francisco, you have to assume that maybe that was a piece he would have focused on. Yeah, exactly. And uh, quickly, COVID bill uh, failed, uh, didn't really fail. It was put on pause, as we say now. Uh, Buffy Wicks, uh, assemblywoman from the East Bay, shelved a bill that would have required uh, employers to uh, check for vaccinations by January of 2023. A lot of opposition to that bill from especially public safety uh, unions uh, and others. Um, and I think, you, you know, you, what we're seeing is really a beginning of a pivot. 
pivot away from some of these restrictions. People just aren't feeling, you know, they're more vaccinated folks now, boosted. Um, and I just think the the sense of urgency is not there. Yeah, I think, look, this was an effort that started last legislative session. And I think what it ran into then was an issue of time. They simply just ran out of time to get something in the works before the session ended. I think now was an issue of timing, right? Yes, there was this, you know, opposition from public safety uh, unions. But to your point, the, the you know, what lawmakers would have to go through both in this bill and also when it comes to the school vaccine bills, do they feel like they have an incentive to kind of face down tough opposition if there isn't isn't this public, you know, calling for more uh, action on COVID? Exactly. And there's a couple of other bills that may see the same fate. Uh, one to eliminate the personal belief exemption for uh, K through 12 students and other to allow kids 12 and older to get a vaccine without their parents approval. A lot of folks might, you know, not like that idea, you know, sort of the government stepping in for parents. We've heard a lot about, about that. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Lon He Chen. He's a Republican running to be the next state controller. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here today with Guy Marzarati. And today we're going to be joined by someone we've had on our radio and television air many, many times over the years as a politics and policy analyst. Today, Lan He Chen from Stanford's Hoover Institution is here as a candidate. He's running for state controller as the state's top fiscal officer. The incumbent, Betty Yee, who is a Democrat, is termed out, so the field is pretty wide open. Lan He Chen, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you in person here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming in. So we like to begin with people's bios. You know, yeah. and you have an interesting one. You were, I believe, born in North Carolina, but your parents came here from Taiwan. Talk about that and, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, what brought them to the U.S.? Yeah. So my parents were born in Taiwan and they grew up in Taiwan. They came to the United States in the 1970s to pursue graduate education, probably like a lot of uh, your listeners may have heritage in that way, or they themselves may have come from foreign countries uh, to pursue education. My father's a physician. My mother was a chemist. And it's funny because they met in Ohio and, you know, they came from an island of about 20 million people. They didn't know each other in Taiwan. They come to the United States and they meet at this graduate student mixer and uh, fall in love. Great American love story. Get married. Um, they moved to North Carolina because my dad was finishing his training at Duke University. And then my dad became the town doctor in this town of about 800 people, rural North Carolina. Uh, really nice folks. I don't remember very much about it, but I, I do remember that it was a small town. 
And, uh, you know, after a few years there, they got on this fast track to green card status and to citizenship and then became citizens of the United States because the government had a program at the time that gave these professionals that special pathway. Uh, but after a few years in North Carolina, they figured out two things. First of all, Chinese food is not very good in North <laughs> Carolina. And the second thing was that it was very far from Taiwan, where their relatives and a lot of their friends were. So we moved to Southern California, which is where I grew up, went to public high school, um, really enjoyed my upbringing in Southern California, and then went back east for college. I went to Harvard College and uh, spent a long time on the East Coast. I ended up getting four degrees from Harvard, as you noted earlier, uh, including a law degree and a PhD in political science, and then spent the next you know kind of decade and a half in national policymaking, working for uh, people like Mitt Romney. Uh, I served as his chief policy advisor when he ran for president. And then when that was all over, we moved back to Northern California, back to California, to Northern California, so I could take up an appointment at Stanford and at Hoover. Take us back to Roland Heights, though, right? That's where you grew up yeah. in the San Gabriel Valley. Tell us a little about your childhood there. Was it, you know, politics? Did that enter the conversation? Was that something that your family was interested in talking about? You, you know, my parents were kind of alarmed when I told them that I was interested in, in policy <laughs> and politics, right? They said, why don't, why don't you go get a job that's actually going to be able to support yourself? So they always wanted me to go to law school. So I, I, I did end up going to law school, although <laughs> I haven't spent much time practicing law. Um, I uh, I loved growing up in L.A., you know, and I people who uh, follow me on Twitter or who've heard me talk know that I'm a big Dodger and Laker fan. I know that's not Ooh, always apologies. great for the Bay Area, not always Ooh. great for the Bay Area audience, but I like to say that I'm I'm a true fan. I don't you know, I'm not a fair weather fan. I'm not someone who's going to change my allegiances for politics, but I, I, I grew up a big sports fan. You know, the suburb I grew up in, Roland Heights, is a little bit of an ethnic enclave. It's predominantly Asian. It's actually quite diverse. It was Asian Hispanic when I grew up. My high school uh, had about 2,000 people, you know, big public high school in Southern California. But I really loved growing up in California. So I, I didn't come from a political family, although my grandfather, my father's father, was one of the first Supreme Court justices in Taiwan. So I did come from a legal, a little bit of a legal history. Um, I remember my earliest political memory was watching the presidential debate in 1988 between uh, Dukakis and George H.W. Bush. And I remember thinking to myself when I watched that debate, a lot of people remember that debate for Bernard Shaw's question to Michael Dukakis, you know, what would happen if your wife Kitty was sexually assaulted? And he gave kind of a technocratic answer. And, it was a and that was question. it. Yeah, and that was it, right? And, um, Anyway, I remember that, that was debate. was it for him, actually. Yeah, for him. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I don't remember the debate for that. I remember it just because I thought to myself, these people are doing really important things that affect people's actual lives. And that's actually the first time I thought to myself, well, maybe I want to be involved in politics. I didn't come from a political family. It's not like my last name is Kennedy or something else, right? So I had to kind of build my own career and my own network in politics. And you know, I think for a lot of Asian Americans who might think about doing the same thing, they're going to experience, and not just Asian Americans, but Hispanics and, and people of all kinds of backgrounds. Um, you know, we have a political system in the U.S. that enables that. You don't have to have a certain nobility or a certain background to be involved in politics. And I think that's great. There were a lot of uh, Asian folks who uh, ended up in Southern California, places like Monterey Park. And I'm wondering, did you ever feel... Uh, you know, targeted or bullied or, you know, uh, name calling because you were Asian American. Yeah. I didn't experience it growing up because, as I said, kind of where I grew up was was quite Asian. Um, I have experienced it at times in my life as I've gone on into environments that are less Asian. You know, I lived in, in Boston for a good period of time and I was definitely the target of slurs on the street. You know, north end of Boston is not the... Um, not the, uh, it's a good neighborhood from a food perspective, but that's about it, you know? And, and I remember being, being called various names, you know, slant eyes and things that, 
um, that Asian Americans experience every single day. And so when we had the recent wave of anti-Asian violence, it was personal for me uh, because I'd experienced that. I'd had relatives experience it, friends experience it. And uh, I, I don't think and I don't see how anybody, whether in the public sphere or otherwise, can sit back and simply say that that's okay. You know, And so uh, one of the things that I did was I got involved in an organization called the Asian American Foundation, which is uh, dedicated to uh, sort of more fully integrating Asian Americans into different aspects of, of life, both public and otherwise in the United States. And uh, it's a cause I believe very strongly in. And you know, one of the things that I do when I make public appearances is I want to look for the next generation of Asian American that wants to get involved in our politics and say, you can do it. You can make a difference. And I want you to, to come along with me, even if you don't agree with me all the time. I know after you graduated from Harvard, you went to Washington, D.C., started doing some political work, and then you went back to get your yeah. uh, PhD. Was that always the plan or did you no. find political work maybe wasn't, initially wasn't for you? Yeah, well, that's exactly what it was. So I, I went to Washington. I moved to Washington without a job. My parents thought I was crazy. <laughs> uh, finished Harvard College. I'd graduated, you know, one of the, the you know, best universities in, in the country, I suppose. And, uh, you know, my parents said, why don't you go like do something where you can actually make a living? And I, I just really wanted to be involved in policymaking and politics. And so I moved to DC without a job. And I got a job at a at a kind of strategic communications firm. I worked there for a few months. It just I I, I didn't feel like that was why I'd gone to D.C. It just didn't feel like I was really involved in something impactful and meaningful. And so I went back to graduate school at the advice of my uh, graduate advisor, who became my graduate advisor, a guy named Sid Verbo, one of the greatest political scientists in my view of all time. And uh, uh, went back to graduate school because I thought, you know, hey, someday I might want to teach. And if you want to teach at the university level, you got to go get a PhD. And so I did that. But, um, you know, throughout my life, I've really tried to be at that intersection of, of academics, but also practicality in terms of what are the applications of what we're learning and teaching people. And, and I think I've been fortunate to have a career where I've been able to do that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Guy Marzarati. We're talking with Lon Hee Chen. He's a Republican seeking to break the Democrats' monopoly on statewide office in California. He's running for state controller. Let's talk about that job. Um, it's not, uh, you know, it's a little bit out of sight. For <laughs> yeah. most, I'm not sure most people would know what a controller does, but he's, it's the, the top fiscal uh, watchdog in California or could be. Uh, you have audit power. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is it uh, that appeals to you about that job? It's a tremendously important role. And it's funny because we did kind of a, a random survey and asked people, do you know what the California state controller does? And I think something like 5% of people <laughs> came back and said they did. And I said, Sounds you know, those five, I said those 5% are lying because they have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> what the state controller does. So it, it is an important job because the, the reason why I'm running at this time is because I believe that California can be so much better at solving problems. And for me, it comes down to a basic kind of analysis. How are we spending our money? Are we getting maximum results for that money? And what do we need to be doing better to solve these issues we face as a state? And the state controller can answer all those questions. The state controller has the ability to go in and provide transparency around state spending, has the ability to go in and audit any program of state government or local government that uses state or certain amount of federal money. So it's a very important position. You also sit as controller on 80 different boards and commissions across the state, including the governing boards of the two biggest public pension programs, certainly in the country. Uh, and, and so it, it's an important and impactful job, chief fiscal officer, but people don't know about it. And, and my goal in this really is to show people 
we can move the needle on basic good government. We can make government work better for people. And this is a job where actually that is your responsibility every single day. It is not to be ideological. It is not to be partisan. It is not to be sort of somebody who is a culture warrior. None of that stuff appeals to me. And that is not what this job is about. This job is about can we get someone in who's competent to actually play this role as watchdog, but also as chief transparency officer. We'll talk about some of the specific audits and the CalPERS, CalSTRS stuff. But I wonder, you know, do you think there's a way to deliver the kind of transparency that you're talking about without eroding public trust in government? Or is it kind of just how it goes? You do the audits, you find stuff. We in the media, we do stories, and then people become maybe less, have less faith in their government and institutions. I I think, Guy, one of the reasons people don't have more faith in government is because they don't feel it's transparent. They feel like all their money goes to Sacramento and it goes into one big black hole. And we get told about what we're spending money on, but we don't know if that spending is achieving results. I mean, one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about is homelessness. And we've heard in the city of Los Angeles, for example, one homelessness program is delivering uh, care and help to unhoused people at a cost of $800,000 per unhoused person. And you ask yourself, well, is that working? Why is the money going there in that way? We don't have basic answers to those kinds of questions. And so in my view, the best way we restore trust is by showing people we can be transparent and we can run government transparently. And the, the controller's job at the end of the day is not to make public policy on homelessness or any other issue for that matter. But it is to shine a light on what's happening so people can, through their elected representatives, make the change they believe is appropriate. I often say that the issue is not whether we spend more or less, but whether we're spending smartly or not. I believe that we need to be spending smarter, and that's why this position is important. You say that you're not ideological and you don't really care about that stuff, but the legislature and the governor <laughs> are pretty ideological yeah. as a rule. I mean, they are politicians. Um, so. You can make recommendations, you yeah. can get headlines perhaps, you can release an audit, but how do you get you know, the legislature, which right now has super majorities of Democrats in both houses, how do you get them to basically take your suggestions, which would make you look good? Well, you know, politics is a pretty pure marketplace, <clears throat> I, I think, in the sense that people are responsive to what uh, voters want and to what voters believe needs to happen. And part of the challenge we have now, as I go around the state and I talk to everyday Californians, what I discover is so many people just, they don't have basic answers to these questions. And I have a a firm belief that when they see what's going on, you know, one of the things I want to do is I want to look at all of our state spending and programs and figure out, can we grade that spending? Just like, you know, our kids get, they used to get grades in school. You know, sometimes it doesn't feel like they do anymore, but grading programs to say, how efficacious has this program been against what we expected? So we're spending this amount of money. What's our return on investment? Um, has this program been effective? And I think if you look at potentially you know, spending billions of dollars on a program that's a D or an F, that's going to create some public outrage. And that is going to have members of the public demanding of their elected officials, hey, we need to be doing something different. So you're right. I, I can't make it happen on my own. But I, I think the beauty of this office in some ways is because it's away from the ideological kind of partisan nature of our politics, it does give you the ability to just say, here are the facts. Here's what's going on. And we'll have recommendations. But by the way, those recommendations won't just come from me. They'll come from Democrats. They'll come from Republicans. We'll take the best ideas and highlight them. So I'm not opposed to helping Democrats, Republicans, independents, whoever, as long as we have good ideas out there, that's really what I'm focused on. Okay, day one, what's your dream audit list? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, you know, we've got um, some big programs in the state that we have not looked at carefully in some time. 
Uh, one example is the Medi-Cal program, which is obviously a very important program because it affects so many Californians. It's grown by almost 40% since the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Uh, and it is an important source of, of coverage for many Californians. But when the program has been looked at, we had a great state auditor that stepped down recently, a woman named Elaine Howell. The last time that she took a look at Medi-Cal was 2019, and it was kind of like a spot audit. And she discovered that $70 million in benefits that year had gone to deceased people. All right. Now, $70 million, some state officials think that's rounding error, but I think that's real, right? That's money that could be spent on dental benefits, on childcare benefits, on things that people could actually use. So Medi-Cal is a great example. We have not comprehensively looked at the program in many, many years. In fact, the last comprehensive look at Medi-Cal I could find on the state controller website was from 2002. So I, I think it's long overdue that we take a good hard look at where that money is going. Are we providing it in the right places? And we could say the same thing about the in-home supportive services or IHSS program. We could say the same thing about K-12 through education, which is obviously a huge amount of money. The controller can look at every single school district and what's happening in K-12. through So there's a tremendous number of places we could go. But on day one, I think I would focus on accountability for those big programs and then real transparency into how our state is spending money. You mentioned Elaine Howell, the former state auditor. And uh, we had her on the show just as she was leaving her job. And, you know, she warned the state 10 years ago about EDD, the Employment Development Department, which was, you know, had a fiasco meltdown during the early uh, weeks and months of the pandemic. Billions of dollars uh, went to all kinds of people who didn't deserve it, uh, including people in state prisons. Uh, And, you know, she said to us, well, I warned them, I told them, here's the audit, here's how you can fix it, and nothing happened. Yeah. So doesn't that suggest that there's something bigger uh, to solve than just who's the controller? Well, I, here's what I think. She did a great job, but she didn't have an independent platform, right? Her job was tied to what the legislature asked her to investigate. At the end of the day, she didn't have the power of an independent constitutional office. And the beauty of the controller's office is you do have a little bit of a bully pulpit, particularly on issues of accountability. If you stand there and say, listen, here are the things you need to get done, and I'm going to keep reminding you of those things until you do them, that's going to apply some real pressure on an issue like EDD, for example. I mean, and and Scott, these aren't I don't think they're particularly difficult problems to solve. I think we have a big technology problem in this state, which is a funny thing to say because we're the most innovative state in the whole country. But one of the things I discovered, you know, I spent four years on something called the Social Security Advisory Board. I was actually appointed to that job by President Barack Obama. And it's one of the uh, organizations that oversees our federal Social Security program. And one of the things they discovered when I served on that board was how much of the back technical end of Social Security is based on a program language called COBOL a programming language called COBOL, which some of your listeners may know. It's like 50 years old. In fact, the biggest risk we have is we don't have enough COBOL engineers because they're getting too old to be engineers. (laughs) And so we have a similar problem with the back end of what's happening in many of our state programs. We got to get that fixed. I mean, we just have to. That's a procurement problem, partly. It's a procurement problem, but it's also, I think, a little bit of laziness, right? We keep doing the same thing over and over again because it's easy. We renew the same contracts. We kind of continue on the same pathway. But And this IT stuff is not exciting to anybody. They'd rather be talking about issues that make the front page of our of our newspapers and that make your show. Well, when it melts show. down, it is on the front page. <laughs> well, but that's the problem, right, is it sh- we shouldn't have to wait for it to melt down. And so for me, at least, technology improvements would be a big part of this job. You mentioned the bully pulpit. You'll have that uh, on the state boards of, of the state pension funds, CalPERS, CalSTRS, giving advice on, on their investments. What do you make of these calls to divest from fossil fuel companies? Yeah. There's a bill moving forward uh, to do that in the state legislature to get 
CalPERS, CalSTRS out of investing in fossil fuel companies? You know, um, both CalPERS and CalSTRS face tremendous challenges in part because there is a huge unfunded liability that both funds face. And uh, the primary responsibility, in my view, of both CalPERS and CalSTRS is to return a maximum amount on the invested uh, capital, which is really the invested capital of the people of the state of California. And when the funds start to deviate from those, uh, what I think are very basic requirements, uh, we end up with a situation where, unfortunately, we're not getting the kind of return we should be getting. And who's on the hook for that? Teachers, firefighters, cops, people whose pensions are, are frankly dependent on the fund's ability to operate well. And what I worry about is if for some reason, CalPERS and CalSTRS cannot return what they expect to pay. Taxpayers, all of us, are going to be on the hook for it. So while I understand there's a desire and an interest in picking whatever cause someone wants to pick and saying, well, we shouldn't be involved in this, that, or the other, a lot of opinions on that. But at the end of the day, it is, as a general matter, my view, and we could, you know, there might be specific exceptions here or there I would consider. But as a general view, my thought is we need to be doing everything we can to make sure these funds are able to pay the benefits they're supposed to pay. And anything we do that compromises that ability, I think we should be looking at with a very critical eye. We're getting short on time, but the current state controller, Betty Eden, has come out this week against two cryptocurrency proposals, uh, one to let the state accept uh, that virtual currency for payments. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Should we be in the crypto business? Well, I, I don't know about being in the crypto business, but I do know that as a state, we need to have the infrastructure to support digital payments at some point, digital currency, uh, cryptocurrency, uh, blockchain technology. We need to be able to accept that at some point that's going to become a bigger and bigger part of the mix of different kinds of ways that people pay for things. And state agencies are currently not prepared. I think Controller E is right in that regard. We need to be making the technological upgrades to be ready for that. Now, there's a different question around volatility of digital currencies and how we address that question. That was another reason why I think she opposed that legislation. But uh, in my view, I would be preparing the state to accept cryptocurrencies, and I think we should. Yeah. We are out of time. Lan Hee Chen, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks. Thanks, Scott and Guy. Always great to be here. All right. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy is our producer. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. Before we go, a quick plug. Tomorrow, Friday night, Scott will be hosting a debate for State Assembly in District 17, San Francisco, between Matt Haney, David Campos. You can check that out at 7 o'clock at night on KQED TV. Looking forward to that. And if get you want to get your popcorn, <laughs> if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and 
I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.